If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Hello, you're listening to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor. And I'm Sue Wingrove, the deputy editor. This is our February podcast. Coming up, we have... Most historians in the last generation or two have taken Cromwell very much uh, at his word, have kind of been beguiled by him, and I include myself in that. That was the world-leading authority on Oliver Cromwell, Professor John Morrill, on what we need to learn about this key Civil War figure. I actually think there is a great deal to celebrate at all sorts of levels. I mean, by the end of the decade, Britain was becoming a much more sort of prosperous country. That was Juliet Gardner, talking about the 1930s. And Richard is no, you know, he's certainly no shrinking violet. He's willing to, to put himself right in the heart of conflict. And that was Thomas Asbridge on Richard I and his martial prowess in the Crusades. This monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy of the magazine later on. Now, on to the interviews. Oliver Cromwell. You'd have thought that we'd have a pretty good idea of what such a critical figure in British history actually said. 
Perhaps not, says Cambridge University professor John Morrow, who is part of a research project that hopes to unravel exactly what his words were. I've had a chat with him. So uh, you're, you're part of an international project, which is which is looking to capture Cromwell's voice. I've, I've read in, in in some of the uh, literature about what you're trying to do. What, what yes, does that mean? Right. What does that mean? And what what, what are you trying to do? Right. Well, um, for some great figures in history, there have been kind of collections of everything that's got their name associated with it, so their life works. And that means every deed, every uh, every, every pay warrant and so on. We, would, we don't want to do that. We want to publish everything in which we can hear, as it were, across time, something of Cromwell's personality coming through. So obviously it's all the letters that he wrote himself um, that he um, assigned, whether or not we have the originals, whether we have to go from copies. There are speeches he made in Parliament where there were stenographers taking notes in shorthand, so we get pretty close to his actual words. And then we've got people who were were in the House of Commons when he was at the backbencher who were kind of summarising what he said, Uh, you know, just like people attending a lecture and taking some lecture notes. So we've got some summaries, but that's sufficient, we think. We think that kind of does still give you a flavour of the man himself. So we're putting together all these different kinds of material um, and producing a new edition uh, because we don't think um, that the editions which exist up till now are um, at all acceptable. What's, what's the problem with the existing editions of, of Cromwell's? Well, the, a very high proportion of his letters, uh, for example, uh, exist in, in several transcripts, several uh, early copies where we don't have an original. A lot of them, for example, were published. I mean, he wrote to Parliament reporting on his battles, and they were then, as it were, given out to different newspapers who uh, summarise or wrote this, uh, published them in in, in quite distinctive forms. And so we want to do some serious source criticism to look at who was the favoured journalist, who was the one who would have been asked uh, to to publish the official version. And then we think we'll be able to produce a much better um, a much better set of, of, uh, of, of, of letters than the existing versions, which really haven't gone into that at all. I mean, the main edition from the 20th century um, dealt with the problem of of different versions of his speeches uh, by just collating them, by just making a personal choice of which phrases to include and which ones not, whereas we will um, use one of them as the proof text and then offer, you know, in footnotes and so on, a guide to where there are variations. But we will we will start with the assumption that, you know, that, that, that it is possible to distinguish between the reliability of alternative um, versions of the same um, letter or speech. So how, how significant do you think the discrepancies between the, the current um, editions of, of Cromwell's writings and what he actually said or wrote are, are going to be? What I mean, you're, you're well, sort of started yeah, on this project, so what do you think? What's, what's your what's your feeling? So there, there are there are some very obvious ones. Um, when he's uh, speaking to the um, 144 godliest men in England, who he's gathered together as a constituent assembly or nominated parliament in 1653, in one version he's reported uh, of telling them that this is a day of 
the Lord, i.e. this is an important day in the unfolding of God's plan, or in another version, this is the day of the Lord, i.e. this is the day when we can anticipate the second coming and the, the end of time. And the, the, that very simple change from A to the changes the meaning very dramatically. And in fact, the two people listening to that speech and recording it do obviously bring different expectations because, uh, because they, the whole of that one, one version is more apocalyptic than the other. So one heard it more apocalyptically. Now that was his uh, privilege as a listener, but there are reasons for believing that the other listener was more, was more concerned, as it were, to record what Cromwell said rather than record his own, his own impressions of it. So it is possible to make uh, these sorts of distinctions. That's only one example. There are, you know, there are many more. There's, um, Cromwell uh, um, addressing the Irish clergy uh, in 1649 in a, in a thing rather barbarously he called the Declaration of the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland for the Undeceiving of uh, Seduced and Deluded People. Um, the version which has existed in all previous accounts of Cromwell, uh, Cromwell's words is, is the English edition printed about three months after an Irish edition. And the Irish edition is clearly intended for an Irish audience and is very different from the, the one which had been, which adapted for an English audience three months later. So uh, that, that's just another example. Sure. So do you, do you suppose that um, once, you, once the project's concluded and you've got uh, a, a better idea of, of what, what Cromwell's actual words were, that there's going to be any significant changes in the way that we view the man, any, any sort of biographical notes that, that are going to have to be altered? Yes, I'm sure there are, though, of course, by definition, those were the ones we will discover as a result of the process rather than in anticipation of it. But, I, but uh, there is a crucial question about Cromwell, which is the question of his sincerity. And um, most historians in the last generation or two have taken Cromwell very much uh, at his word, have kind of been beguiled by him, and I include myself in that. Um, that, that the, 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 there's, been, there's been no really unfavorable biographies of, of Cromwell. There are just signs at the moment that some historians are beginning to go back to an old tradition of being, uh, of actually seeing that perhaps he was a, uh, that the Machiavellian side of him was more dominant. And I think this edition might help to throw quite a lot of light on some of the crucial um, moments in his career where some historians in the past detected um, deceit and, and double dealing and most modern historians have been content to take him to his word. So I hope we'll open up that debate again. Um, um, so even though it would mean an interpretation of Cromwell, which I've not associated myself with, I think that's probably, you know, for the good of, the good of uh, history as a, as a subject. Okay. So, I mean, we're three and a half century removed from, from, from when the words were actually first said and written. I mean, it's going to be a, a hard task, isn't it, to, yeah. to come up with, with more definitive uh, accounts of what he, what he said? Well, we've got a we've got a team of eight um, scholars who will um, actually be responsible for the edition. We've, we've got three three volumes of um, uh, of texts with two editors for each, and then we've got a com big companion volume which will itself explore the provenance of the text and all the problems with the text and the how we can how we can use the text, but also begin to draw attention to some of the consequences. We've got two more editors for that, so eight editors, and then an editorial board which has virtually every serious biographer of Cromwell on it. Um, and so we think this will be, you know, um, as near definitive as, as we. 
we can get. And we've already been very successful in having a pilot scheme for uh, all his Irish letters and looking at the, or, uh, generating all the problems. We've had a series of workshops looking at the, uh, the issues that will face us as editors. Um, and um, we're now applying for grant money so that we can have some um, postdoctoral research assistants who will make absolutely sure we have found you know, every um, early text or every, every surviving later copy of a lost early text um, that, we can, so that will mean that we'll do the edition re- really, really well. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, surely this, this problem must apply to, to many other key historical figures too in the sense that what they wrote and said may have been misrepresented by, 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 yeah. by, by, by editors um, since then. Is it, I mean, is it, is it a problem which is particularly um, an issue with Cromwell or, or is it a wider issue that really needs historians to knuckle down and work out? I think that probably it's a bigger problem because we have far fewer originals. And because we are in this very unusual position of having about um, 30 major speeches of the head of state um, that were recorded by people who'd been trained to use shorthand. They'd been trained, of course, because in the 17th century, lots of people were wanted to take down sermons in full. And so we do think that we have got uh, this remarkable, uh, this remarkable uh, body of material um, in the speeches that uh, are for which there are very, very few um, other parallels before the age of, of modern stenography. Uh, but they they do present. Um, they do present unique difficulties um, of uh, of getting accurate um, evaluations of the relationship between the words recorded and the words probably spoken. And and did Cromwell write much himself? Is is are there many re- records actually from his own hand? He's he's he's. Um, he writes a lot of letters, mm. and in his, and for, so, for example, um, he gives very, very vivid accounts of his main military um, uh, exploits, and that, of course, is interesting to those who are interested in things military. But very frequently, uh, he at the end of um, um, an account of one of his many, many victories, he would meditate on the meaning of that victory. What what did this victory mean, both in terms of his discernment of, of God's will, but also also in terms of how this changed the political balance and what the consequences of uh, this were for the future settlement. So we do have his, we do have um, an interesting body of work about his about that. When when the army itself that he was um, a senior commander in the new model army um, was in its most democratic phase in the late 1640s and was debating the future of the of, of the of the country, um, there are. Are, you know, again, major contributions by Cromwell to the Putney debates, for example, where the whole future of, of the monarchy and the future of the franchise, whether or not there should be a universal, at least masculine franchise, that when that was all being debated, Cromwell is contributing very significantly. So we can see a lot um, from perhaps more from his spoken word and his written word about uh, how he saw a country in revolution and, and what the revolution was about and what its destiny could be and should be. And but 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 for his speeches in Parliament, we don't have any. We don't have his his, his like his lecture notes or anything like no. that. So we can't we can't can't go back to them. 
No, we don't. I mean, he's, he seems to always to have spoken extempore. Um, but um, one of the interesting things is if you get a good actor to read the um, text of the speeches, they read naturally. In other words, when you, when you actually see them on the page, they're not tremendously grammatical. They're not tremendously um, well punctuated. But actually, if you read them aloud, they do have um, the natural um, flow of a spoken speech. Yeah. So this adds enormously to, the, to our sense that what we've got is something pretty close to what he actually said. So just to finish up, I mean, as you're looking at all the speeches and the lessons, what, what, how good a communicator was he? Was he a powerful orator? Was he, would he have been an interesting man to listen to? Or does... Yes, I think, uh, well, uh, one, of, one of my findings in recent years is that uh, I, that is pretty certain that he was um, um, a lay preacher in the 1630s in a conventicle. Uh, so I think that the, what he had is very much the style of, um, of a Puritan preacher of the day. Um, and of course, he, he his, um, um, everything he writes and everything he speaks is, is drenched in the language of the Bible. I mean, he's deeply, um, um, I mean, his, his life, we can see, I think there's, any, there's no doubt there's a, about this in terms of sincerity, that, you know, that, that he spent his life reading the Bible and pondering its meaning for his own life and the life and his times. And so he has a rhetoric, which is, which is very much that of a revivalist preacher and is, is not, entirely dissimilar from some of the things you can see from the televangelists in um, in america at the present and um so there is the, there is a kind of tradition to the way in which he speaks and certainly um he d- does have a, a powerful effect on his contemporaries okay and, and just last thing when, when are we going to see the the fruits of the of the research project well, we've signed a contract for the end of 2013, so that's what we're, we're hoping for. Um, uh, there may well be you know, extracts and things on, on webs. We'll almost certainly have a website, and we'll probably put things up to test you know, how people find them, because obviously how we lay it out will, um, you know, will be for the benefit of others, so we'll probably want to get feedback. So watch out for a website for about 2011. Okay. Many thanks, John. That was John Morrow. You can read his feature on this subject in the February issue of BBC History magazine. And now, fast forward to Britain in the 1930s. A decade of economic and social doom and gloom, with the threat of a Second World War hanging over it? Well, that's one way of looking at it, but it's not the whole picture. In this month's magazine, Juliet Gardner, whose new book on the subject is just out, reassesses that decade. I spoke to her earlier to find out more. Now, Juliet, you described the 1930s as a rather confused decade, which is something I'd like to explain further today. Um, I wonder if you could begin by describing what historians might call the dark side of the 1930s. Well, I think in many ways um, there are two dark sides. I mean, there's the dark side at home and there's the dark side abroad. Let um, we start with at home. I mean, the main problem, of course, in the 1930s was unemployment. I mean, it rose to nearly three million, and it just seemed intractable. Um, and it wasn't short-term unemployment, which everybody sort of thought they knew how to deal with. It was long-term unemployment, and that was the feeling that they, nobody, no politician, nobody really 
really had the answer. You know, and the problem was obviously it was a structural problem. Um, a lot of British industries really were no longer viable. This had been true since before the First World War, but it had really been sort of a disguised problem. And in the 30s, it really hit society. And, you know, there was very real poverty and a feeling of despair, really. Where was Britain heading? And then, of course, abroad, that's when it got called, I think, um, the low dishonest decade, in the words of W.H. Auden. Um, it was, of course, there'd been the First World War, the war to end all wars. And by the 1930s, of course, um, there were wars over, all over the world. I mean, in China, of course, Manchuria. In Abyssinia, there was the Spanish Civil War. There was the rise of Hitler, of course, Chancellor in 1933. Um, and the feeling, again, that Britain uh, was at sea, didn't know how to deal with these um, you know, problems abroad. There was great criticism about Britain's refusal to intervene in the Spanish Civil War and, of course, the appeasement of Hitler, um, you know, taking Hitler at his word, which, of course, uh, didn't, didn't work. I mean, you know, well, promises were made, promises were broken, and Britain was clearly drifting to war. I see. So this general sort of political and economic gloominess in Britain was sort of matched in the world um, as a whole. Mm. Um, so what, therefore, can we find to celebrate about the 1930s? I actually think there is a great deal to celebrate at all sorts of levels. I mean, there's a, there's a straightforward thing that, of course, actually by the end of the decade, Britain was becoming a much more sort of prosperous country. Its economy really had switched. I mean, it stopped um, relying on what were known as the traditional staple industry like iron and steel and coal um, and shipbuilding and had invested much more in really in the domestic economy and sort of things like light engineering, consumer durables, what we call white goods now, cars, all that sort of thing. And actually the cost of living was falling and wages were rising. So if you were in work um, and if you lived in the southeast or you know, the south of the wash, on the whole, you know, you were, you, you were doing rather well. You know, there was a great boom in house building. I mean, you know, three million houses were built between the wars and um, you know the owner occupation became much more uh, feasible for a much wider spread of people and um, owning your own car all that sort of thing so at the um, economic level I think you know there are certain things to, to celebrate but I think also there's a more profound sense of optimism um, and that is the uh, belief by a lot of people that actually the tools were there to make a better society um, both in terms of sort of science and in terms of politics but in other words if there was with planning and you know investigation and the goodwill really a, a better a brave new world and not um, an Aldous Huxley sort of dystopia but a real brave new world could be forged from the materials as it were that Britain had in the 1930s and there was a great commitment I think to make society a better place and a great deal of thought about okay in an advanced industrial democracy what is the role of the state? You know, how are people going to have a better life? And I think that's optimistic. I see. So what we have really are two very different pictures of the same period. How do we begin to reconcile these very differing um, pictures? Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, people are always sort of saying, you know, well, was, was it a baby? How do we judge Britain? Was it the slump or was it, you know, a baby Austin in every garage? And I think part of it is actually geographic. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, in those areas with the old traditional heavy industries, as I've said, coal mining and shipbuilding and iron and steel and textiles. So that means sort of in the northeast, in 
Wales, in parts of Scotland, you know, there was very um, real poverty. There was high unemployment. Um, there was very little opportunity for new jobs. Whereas in the South, where there was sort of more light engineering investment in light engineering and car making and all this sort of consumer durables, um, you know, there, there really was a dividing line, I think, in Britain. And it wasn't only geographic. Of course, it depended on your skills. I mean, if you had been working for 30 years in one industry, it was very hard, perhaps, to, you know, learn new skills and uh, move to another one. And of course, all this idea about getting on your bike to find work, I mean, that's all very well if, um, you know, you hadn't got a family and, uh, and all, the, all those sort of commitments. And um, and the point was that once you got on, once you were unemployed, long-term unemployed, um, you know, there just really weren't the, um, there weren't the, it, there wasn't the infrastructure in place, really, to sort of get you back onto your, um, onto your feet again. So, and I think, I mean, I think the geographic thing is interesting because, of course, there were pockets. I mean, we mustn't imagine it was all, all wonderful in the South. I mean, in Cornwall, for example, I mean, there was a great deal of unemployment and poverty. But I think, you know, the geography, um, you know, the sort of work you were doing and the age you were and your family commitments made a huge difference. I see. Now, tell us about the writer J.B. Priestley, because um, writing in the 30s, he had uh, identified some rather contradictory aspects of the country as well, hadn't he? Yes, he he had. He took a journey around um, Britain in 1933, and he wrote his book, The English Journey. And he really, he thought he found, he'd actually, when I say Britain, I mean England. He really, he called an English journey, and that's where he went. But, you know, he cast cast an eye over Wales and Scotland too. And what he saw was um, three Englands, really. I mean, there was the old England, which, in a sense, he, you know, he, he, he didn't like because it was, it was deferential and it was hierarchical. But on the other hand, he rather liked old, rural, uh, quiet, slow England of byways and manor houses and old churches. And then there was the industrial England, which was Victorian, uh, Victorian industrialization, which would, and the effects of that by the 30s had become to seem to him very grim, very ugly, harsh, you know, really responsible for a lot of the misery of in Britain. And then, of course, there was New England. Now, that was the England of bypasses and greyhound races and lipstick and cinema and all those and roadhouses. And he didn't like that much either. So, in a way, J.B. Priestley was, in a sense, the chronicler. He was the seer of the 30s, but he was as confused as everybody else because he recognized that British wealth was founded on industrial England. He recognized the beauty of the old traditional countryside. And yet, and he saw the future was sort of, as it were, plate glass factories and all that sort of thing. But he didn't like that. He thought that was vulgar and Americanized. I see. Now, talking of the future, um, you end your piece in the magazine by calling the 30s an unrealized decade. Perhaps you could explain that a little bit. Yes, I think it was an unrealized decade because, of course, in the end, you know, there was still quite high unemployment by the time the Second World War happened. Um, there was, um, there was still, uh, there, there still really weren't solutions to unemployment, um, and there, there weren't the sort of public works that, that the um, health service, in a sense, which was um, in, in a tremendous mess by the end of the 30s, that was still unresolved. So there were an awful lot of things that were unresolved, and of course the um, you know, the war obviously came. I mean, whatever people, uh, ideas about pacifism or appeasement or diplomacy or uh, rearmament, all these things had ended in the end, of course, in the worst, the most terrible world war the world has ever known. But on the other hand, lying on the table 
simple as it were, were all the blueprints for the future. A huge number of plans, of schemes, of ideas, from things like the National Health Service to you know, nationalization of industry to the South Bank Center. All these things were, as it were, in, you know, on the table, um, waiting to be realised um, when peace came. Of course, they didn't come quickly. It wasn't a, it wasn't an, an instant thing. But I think we owe today an enormous amount to the thirties as a seedbed, in a sense, of so much of modern society. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And that was Juliet Gardner, whose new book, The Thirties, An Intimate History of Britain, is published by Harper Press. Now, before we hear about Richard I, let me just remind you that our website, bbchistorymagazine.com, is full of great content that you will surely enjoy if you like this podcast. Here, for instance, is a snippet from our audio guide to Lincoln. But even without its buyers... And even if the engineering principles behind its construction may have been, to our eyes at least, a bit hit and miss, Lincoln Cathedral has to be one of the finest medieval buildings in Europe. And that's part of our regular series of historic town and city guides that you can find on our website. Just look in the Visit History section. On the website you'll also find a weekly TV and radio guide, plus a regular roundup of historical news stories, plus our Friday history quizzes, and thought-provoking opinions from our historical blogger, Nicholas Kinlock. Do take a look if you have a moment. And finally, Richard I, the Lionheart, surely one of England's most impressive battling monarchs. Queen Mary University of London crusade historian Thomas Asbridge has been casting his eye over the martial reputation of this king to see how far it's justified, and he's come up with some surprising findings. You've written a feature in the magazine uh, about Richard I and about his involvement in the Crusades and and the crusade that he specifically was involved with was the Third Crusade. So perhaps we'd better have some backdrop to that crusade. What was happening uh, and who was involved? Well, the Third Crusade was, uh, I think, one of the most dramatic of all of crusading history, uh, in part because it was sparked by a massive battle and, from the Christian perspective, a massive disaster in the Holy Land. Uh, the Muslim world had been effectively united by a Muslim leader called Saladin. And in 1187, he defeated the forces of the kingdom of Jerusalem at a place called Hattin. And then he went on a few months later to retake the city of Jerusalem, a city treasured by the, the Christians and the Muslim world. And this sent shockwaves around Western Europe. I mean, this, the legend has it that the Pope, when the Pope heard the story of what had happened, he died on the spot of a heart attack. Um, and I think we really have to see it as a kind of seismic shock uh, traveling around Western Europe and causing a new call to arms for an expedition that, that has been known now in history as the Third Crusade. Okay, and, and uh, King Richard I of, of England was one of, the, was one of the, the, the monarchs who stepped up to, the, uh, to, 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 this, to this task. Um, so, but he wasn't alone. There was, there was a lot of other people around Europe who were involved in this. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that's really important to remember uh, about Richard the Lionheart's involvement is when the, the cross is first preached in the autumn of 1187, he's actually the first prince north of the Alps to take the cross to answer the call. But at the time, he's still a prince. He is... Uh, he hopes the heir designate to uh, the English throne and to the, the wider Angevin world, this dynasty that's in control of England at the moment, known as the Angevin dynasty, under the, the rule of his father, Henry II. Mm. So he's, he's not a king, and he's also not perhaps the person that we would expect to emerge as the most potent leader of this crusade. There are some other figures who are much, much obvious choices. Uh, for example, the leader of Germany, a man called Frederick Barbarossa, who really is the, the most powerful man in Europe of the day. And the French king, uh, who turns out to be one of Richard's uh, allies stroke enemies through the course of the, the years that follow, a man called Philip Augustus. Hmm. And did, so, so when Richard took the cross, did he have any particular aims or aspirations for his involvement in the crusade? Was, was there anything he really felt that he needed to do other than the obvious... Um, the obvious uh, uh, capture of, of, of Jerusalem. Was, was there anything you had in mind? I think it's a, it's a really, really interesting question to try to get underneath Richard's skin and ask why, first of all, why he took the cross, so why he made this commitment to crusade. Uh, and then, uh, it might sound uh, perhaps a, an obvious point, but actually why he actually went through with his promise, because quite a few kings, including his father, made numerous promises, numerous vows to go on crusade, but never fulfilled them. And I think it's a question that historians have, have somewhat sidestepped this issue of particularly why he took the cross in the autumn of 1187, because he had everything to lose. He'd been fighting pretty much tooth and nail, both in terms of battle and in terms of political intrigue, to make sure that he would be Henry II's heir. And it was clearly coming to crunch time in terms of how uh, the Angevin world was going to be distributed. And suddenly he makes this decision, oh, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to head off on crusade, possibly for one, two, maybe even three years taking himself out of the political situation. And what we don't have is a very clear view of why he did it, why he made that commitment, and why ultimately he followed through on that commitment. I think part of it, obviously, we, 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 we can't doubt the question that uh, perhaps he was motivated by some authentic party, an authentic desire um, to do what he saw of his Christian duty. But I think there's another element in crusading that's, that's very much developing at the time of the Third Crusade, and that is the notion that it is bound together with emerging ideas about chivalry. And I think Richard also saw it, saw this, this chance, this, this new campaign that was being launched as a chance to make his mark as a ruler, as a prince, and someone who was going to become a king, and also as a warrior. And I think that chivalric element, uh, perhaps for him, was very much bound together with uh, piety and, and together with that this notion of reputation mm. so the, so the, the the aspect of of the warrior king the warrior prince is is important here isn't it because that's that gets to the nub of what we're talking about in, in the feature is he he has a reputation richard the lionheart as as a as a great military man uh, both as a warrior and a leader of men why does he have that reputation well i think in large part um he has the reputation uh because of the work of one particular modern historian um, who's championed uh, Richard's martial uh, capacity, his genius, uh, and that's a University of London historian called John Gilliam, who without a doubt is an incredibly skillful, uh, astute, and also formidable academic. Mm. Um, and Gilliam started re-evaluating the Lionheart's career in the 1970s and has been working on him uh, 
ever since. And I think Gillingham's views have held sway over academic discussion uh, for the last three decades. And they've been so powerful that in a way they've almost snuffed out wider debate. And I think that's one of the things that brought me to, to re-examine Richard's activities. I started to think, okay, well, you know, how much of this really holds water? How much, if we look at the real close detail of what's happening on the crusade, um, how many of Gillingham's assumptions hold true? And I, I, I'm not of the, the mind that I want to entirely demolish Richard's reputation either as a crusader, as a king, or as a general. But I think there are some nuances that we can add. Okay. So, so basically you're saying his, his reputation needs to be tempered somewhat. But, uh, so so you, better, you better say why. You better uh, give, give us your reasons for, for, t- for saying that. Well, I think there are two, really. Um, there are two planks or, or platforms within uh, Richard's crusading career that have been really uh, fundamental in establishing his martial reputation. One is this moment in the crusade when he actually meets Saladin in a pitched battle, or what appears to be a pitched battle. Uh, it's on the 7th of September, 1191, and it's really the only uh, pitched major encounter that the two uh, leaders enter into. And it takes place during uh, what we'd call a fighting march, a march that Richard is trying to prosecute as loud leader of the, the Third Crusade down the coast of Palestine to reach a port called Jaffa. Now, I think historians have, have been... Uh, too easily seduced by one particular piece of primary evidence uh, about this particular encounter, this Battle of Arsuf. And it was written, this, this piece of evidence was written by someone called Amboise, someone who we think was in Richard of the Lionheart's army. Uh, we think he was an eyewitness to events. And about six years after the crusade, he wrote uh, a verse account in Old French of the crusade, a sort of narrative account of the, the, the events he'd witnessed. And very much used the Battle of Arsuf as his set piece, as his moment to say this is the, the glorious Richard uh, achieving a victory, a victory that he's planned for, that he's set out to orchestrate. And Ambrose's text is very alluring, and it's full of colour, it's full of passion, it's full of excitement. And, we, and as I said, we think it's from an eyewitness perspective, so it's been given lots of weight, lots of credence. But I started to have doubts about it initially when I, when I thought to myself, well, what is Richard trying to actually achieve uh, in this period? He's going through a protracted and very grueling fighting march. Why would he want to fight uh, a pitched battle against Saladin, especially when we think that he may have been outnumbered by as much as two to one by Saladin's forces? Why would it be in his interest to orchestrate such a dis- potentially decisive encounter, especially because... Uh, one of the great platitudes of medieval history is that uh, battles were very rare and they were extremely dangerous. They could turn on a, you know, on a penny in terms of the outcome. So there's a lot of risk involved. So I had my doubts, and then I started to look at some uh, other evidence. I looked at the Arabic evidence and saw uh, that there were a few things that didn't quite fit together with Amboise's account. And then I, most importantly, started to look at the correspondence that Richard the Lionheart himself wrote uh, much sooner after the event, just a a few weeks after the battle. And what became clear in that evidence is that Richard wasn't really playing up this encounter. He wasn't making it sound like he had set out uh, in his own mind to orchestrate the battle. And most crucially, that his forces were actually camping already uh, near Asuf at the end of the day, before the battle even began. And I think this gives lie to the idea uh, presented in Amboise that Richard had always had in his mind to orchestrate this, this key encounter. So I would suggest that really instead of it being a, 
an active decision on his part, and a decision which many historians have presented as you know, the, the, the absolute apogee of his, his career, the, the height of his fame, one historian called it the, the last great victory for the Crusaders and the Holy Land. Um, I think it's really a chance encounter, and one in which Richard's, he's not active, he's uh, not proactive, he's more of a reactive commander, and I think that's a, a nuance that we have to, to acknowledge. Okay, so so you've you've looked at this key moment in his in his martial career, and, and you're seeing that perhaps he wasn't he wasn't as as um, as, as active as, as as other historians have said. But 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 there must have been numerous other military entanglements in his career. Did he did he not did he not show any military prowess in uh, elsewhere? Yeah, one one of the things I would certainly not attempt to do is to uh, downgrade uh, all of his military achievements. I mean, one of his one of his greatest claims to. Uh, to a great martial reputation is the fact that he manages to shepherd the Third Crusade uh, on this fighting march. Um, again, I think there's room for some uh, re-evaluation because what he's famous for is producing a fantastically disciplined march uh, south from a, a port called Acre down the Palestinian coast to Jaffa and to, in the face of Saladin's aggression to be able to do this while maintaining most of his troops. Uh, in formation and keeping them alive. Now, I think he deserves a praise for this, but we've got to also realize, when, again, when we look very closely at the sources, that actually the first few days of this march were quite disastrous. Um, for a start, he couldn't actually get people to come out of Acre. They were so keen on staying in there, partly because they were afraid of getting killed, and partly because Acre was quite nice. It had lots of good food, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, it was full of brothels. So he had to lure them out of the city, and over the first three or four days, he actually travelled very slowly, hoping to pick up stragglers and trying to convince them to join him. And it was only after the first sort of four or five days of march that he actually put his house in order and managed to impose a, a better marching formation. And, and from that point onwards, he is more successful. So I think he deserves um, deserves some credit nonetheless for that. And I think um, one of the other things we've got to recognise about Richard is he is. In medieval terms, he is a warrior king par excellence because he's, he's prepared to put his neck on the line. And I think that's something we see time and time again in medieval warfare, that quite often uh, a leader needs to be able to put himself in the middle of the fighting to be able to inspire his troops, to, to buoy morale, uh, to turn perhaps the tide of the battle. And Richard is no, you know, he's certainly no shrinking violet. He's willing to, to put himself right in the heart of conflict. Uh, and in, in terms of that aspect, uh, there is no doubt that he's um, quite gifted and, and a brave warrior. Okay, just uh, just just broadening the discussion out. Finally, um, where do we actually get to with with all these with, with all these analysis of, of historical characters? I mean, obviously, um, there, there's a risk of going around in circles. Isn't it? You you disagree with John John Gillingham's uh, view of Richard the First? He, he'll no doubt disagree with 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 some of the points that you make. But where does that actually get us in terms of of understanding the the, the people and, and the and the stories that they uh, that they live through? I think it's a very good point because um, one of the things you can observe if you look back on the way history's been written in the last hundred hundred and fifty years is this kind of cyclical process where we go from from thinking you know, someone's good to someone's bad and, and back again. Yeah. And that's actually, to be honest, that's what Gillingham was doing when he started working on Richard in the nineteen seventies. There'd been a very long and uh, powerful view of long-held and powerful view of Richard that he was brutish, that he was impulsive, that he wasn't very uh, astute as a leader, and Gillingham overturned that. Um, and I don't that is, this is of course part and parcel of, of how uh, historical analysis works. 
But what I don't believe in is, is just swinging the pendulum one way or another for the sake of it. And that's why I'm not setting out to, you know, to denigrate uh, Richard's reputation, to completely destroy it. I think what we need is nuance. We need to find uh, potentially a middle ground that has more uh, basis in reality than this kind of polarized view. It's either one thing or the other. Um, you know, I think he has he has his skills both as a military leader and very importantly as a di- as a diplomat. He's a very very canny negotiator. But at the same time, I think there are weaknesses in his ability to command the Crusaders, and and perhaps even more importantly, when we look at the the end product of what the Crusade does or doesn't achieve, he fails to get Jerusalem back, and he makes two advances on Jerusalem, uh, both of which I think in his mind were actually literally feints. They were. Um, a stratagem, really, to see what the Muslim world would do when he advanced on Jerusalem. And in doing that, I think he's he's following the, you know, the best practice of what you would do in military warfare and military generalship. But what he hasn't quite adjusted to is the fact that you can't fight a crusading war. You can't lead crusaders in the same way that you would lead normal troops. And by going to within 12 miles of Jerusalem twice and then deciding to turn back, he effectively shatters their morale and I think cripples the crusade's chances of, of achieving anything lasting in the Holy Land. And in that way, I think also we need to, to nuance our understanding and refine our understanding of him as a, a crusade leader, not just a, a general or a king. That was Thomas Asbridge. You can read his feature on Richard I in the February issue of BBC History magazine, on sale now, and also Asbridge's book, The Crusades, The War for the Holy Land, is published now by Simon & Schuster. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast, and remember that BBC History magazine is published each month. You can find it in all good news agents in the UK for just £3.80. Or you can save money and make sure that you never miss an issue by taking advantage of one of our great subscription deals whether you're in the UK or indeed overseas. You'll find details on the website, which once again is at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. That's it. We're done. All that remains is for me to tell you that our March podcast will, of course, be a corker. We'll be exploring some revelations about the Battle of Bosworth, among other things. I do hope you'll join us then. <laughs>